Good morning. My name is Nikki Sneed. Today's scripture reading is John 20, verses 11 through 18, which can be found on page 906 in the Black Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, that's John 20, verses 11 through 18. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. We uh, continue our series on the conversations Jesus had with different people in the Gospel of John. Today we're looking at the conversation, as we just read, with Mary Magdalene, his follower and his friend. Uh, And this conversation takes place after the resurrection of Jesus. It's... It is one of my favorite passages. It's a fascinating conversation that's really full of affection. It's something as you read this, it's just there's so much emotion and uh, just personal, relational, affectionate stuff here. Uh, Reading this passage for some of us is like listening to Butterfly Kisses. I used to be, uh, I don't know if you know that song, Butterfly Kisses, used to be utterly unaffected by that song until I had daughters. And uh, now I can't listen to that song without tearing up. It's the same thing here. If, if you are a believer who have ex- experienced God's love and, and have had that kind of personal interaction with Jesus, when you read about this personal interaction of Jesus and Mary, it, it can get a little, little emotional. You see the closeness and the intimacy and the affection that Jesus has for Mary and for all of us. Uh, so that's what we're looking at. Uh, another interesting quality of this text is its symbolic nature. We'll look at specifically the importance of the garden. Why is this all happening in the garden, which is typical of John. John puts a lot of symbolism into his gospel, and this helps us apply it, not just uh, specifically to us, but more broadly to what God has been doing with humanity and how it affects us all today. So that's our plan. I have a very simple outline. We have three points We're going to look at something lost, something found, and someone sent out. So lost, found, 
and sent out. Okay. As you look at Mary here, here's a picture of a person that is utterly devastated by grief. She comes to the tomb early in the morning. So Jesus was crucified on Friday. Now this is early, early Sunday morning while it's still dark. She comes to the tomb. She wants to finish the burial preparations that were interrupted by the Sabbath. Nothing was done on the Sabbath. So she's coming to continue to prepare the body for proper, dignified burial. And here she is outside the tomb and weeping, just weeping, completely overcome with grief. Her beloved friend, teacher, was brutally executed and now... She wants to do something for him, something meaningful for his body, but she can't even find his body to give him a decent burial. So, so she is weeping, overcome with grief, and can't even do anything to, to deal with that emotion because there's no body to do anything with. Now Mary's sorrow makes sense based on what we know about her relationship with Jesus. This is from Luke 8. In, in, in Luke 8, he tells us that Jesus had cast out seven demons out of Mary. So a dramatic experience, right? She was oppressed by seven demons. Jesus comes into her life, frees her from that, and now she's following him. She's part of that inner circle of men and women that follow Jesus, one of the disciples. In fact, we're told that she's one of the women that financially contributed to Jesus' ministry in Luke 8, uh, verse 3. Now imagine... We don't know how long she followed Jesus, but there's the, the deep personal relationship. She's indebted to him for her life. She cares deeply about his ministry. And now Jesus was arrested, tried, sentenced, and crucified. In fact, Mary was one of the women at the cross. In the previous chapter of John, we're told that she is one of the four women actually there as Jesus is crucified and dying on the cross. So... Imagine, try as much as we can, try to identify with that emotion that that she is feeling. She wants to somehow do something for him. She wants to do something to honor him, something maybe even just to deal with her own grief. And yet there's no body. The body's gone. She can't do anything. And so she becomes obsessed with finding the body of Jesus. She seems to be blind to everything else that's happening around her. It's it's, it's amazing how she reacts to things that are happening. There are two angels that speak to her, and she seems to have no understanding that these are angels. She talks to them just like she would to anybody else. Usually when that happens in Scripture, right, people freak out. That's not a, that's not a normal experience for people when an angel is speaking to you. For Mary, she just keeps talking about the body. <laughs> and they say, what are, you, what are you looking for? And she's like, if you can just fi- help me find the body. And then Jesus himself is standing there and talking with her, and she doesn't recognize him. Now, it could be explained, certainly, because his appearance has changed. The new resurrection body is different. But I think also part of it is she's just blinded by grief. And again, just focused on finding the body. She mistakes him for the gardener and is wondering if it's it's he that had taken the body away. And again, just wanting to take care of of that body. The best she can do to serve Jesus now is just take care of his body. So as you read this passage, you see a woman that is that lost something or someone very important to her. But at the same time, 
we see a woman who is herself lost. Here she is in the garden searching for the body of Jesus, and yet she seems to have no clue, no understanding about what is going on around her. In fact, she doesn't even recognize the one whose body she is looking for. Now here's where we're noticing the symbolism of John and helps us connect this particular story to the universal human experience and thus to us this morning. All of this has taken place in the garden. Now this is not accidental. For a scripture reader, when you come to a garden in scripture, you must think about another garden. And when you see a woman in the garden interacting with God, you must think about another woman in another garden. Of course, I'm talking about Eve, who herself had this this very emotional interaction with God, eventually being expelled, kicked out of the garden itself, which was her home. So this garden experience here with Mary makes us think about a more fundamental, a course determining for humanity experience of Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They distrusted God's word, ate of the fruit of the tree, and were cast out of the garden, their true home, the place where everything made sense, the world where they belonged, where they had a relationship with God. And ever since then, humanity has been searching for what we had left behind in the garden. And we have been striving to restore what we had lost in that fatal interaction with the tempter where we took his word instead of God's word. Now it's true on the large scale of human history that we as a human civilization, as a human race, as a community of human beings, we have been looking and searching and pursuing. Human history is characterized by movement, by pursuit, by Conquest by a dream of a better society, by the ideal of establishing a perfect world. It's very easy to look at, a his, at our history in those terms. We've always been going after something, pursuing something, moving towards a goal, and yet not quite able to ever realize that. But also on a personal level, all of us, and I'll try to illustrate that, all of us can look at our lives and see that we too individually have been pursuing something that we have lost in the garden. That we have been striving after something that we are missing in our life, missing in our experience, missing in this new broken world. For an artist, for example, if you are a creative person, there's that pursuit of beauty, the pursuit of of capturing something and then showing it to others. That's an echo from the garden. It's a memory of something, a collective memory of the way things used to be for us where we had beauty around us and we could capture it perfectly. You remember when Adam was able to name the animals. I imagine that was a very easy thing for him to do. He would just look at the animal and see the essence of their being and was able just to say, this is who they are. For a creative person, it's now it's the same process, except we can't quite capture that. And we get glimpses. We look at the fractured identity of people and things around us and trying to get to the essence of it and present it into the world. We used to be able to do that easily. And now we're we're grasping after that. If you're in law enforcement or part of the justice system, 
There's a pursuit of justice with constantly improving laws, right? Constantly improving policies. What are we after? We're after justice, certainly. We're after order, an organization of the world that works, that's fair, that's just, that includes everybody. If you're in that world, that's the pursuit, and yet it is elusive. Can't quite get there. But we have an idea in our minds of the way things should be. That is because things used to be a certain way. And we still somehow are able to tap into that and remember. If you're a student or a researcher or a scholar, if you're in the academic world, what are you after? Why are you always learning? And why is there no end to your learning? Even after you have narrowed down your field in postgraduate studies, you still can't quite understand completely your field. There's more and more to learn. There's more and more to figure out. And there are more and more theories to be interacted with. We're after wisdom. We're after knowledge. Perfect understanding of reality that is, remains elusive to us. And yet that pursuit is there. How about stay-at-home moms? What are you after when you're at home? What are you doing? You're trying to create a place of comfort, a place of peace, a place where, where people can be the way they really are, where children can grow. What are you after? Oh, you're remembering. You're remembering the garden where you came from, where things were the way they're supposed to be, where it was a place of comfort and peace. And now you're trying to recreate that in your home. That's a noble pursuit. But it comes from that reality of the garden where we, were, we had been cast out of and lost. How about romantic relationships? Why does everybody go crazy over love? Why is that? Why is that that you can't write a song that's not about love somehow? Why is that that you hear a poem and it moves you Inexplicably, It's not even about you, it's about someone else's relationship, and yet it moves you. Well, we're still, we're all looking for that acceptance, we're all looking for that love. That's something that we bring into this broken world from another world, from the garden, where we experience that. And so instinctively, we think it's possible, we think there could be a reality in which we will be completely accepted by another human being. And yet, that's an elusive relationship. Even for someone who is driven by greed and accumulation of possessions and money, even that pursuit is somehow reflective, it's twisted, but it is reflective of our experience in the garden. It's possessing the earth. It's enjoying the fruit of our labor. It's misguided, sure, and it's easily abused as any of these pursuits, whether it's beauty or justice or wisdom, or peace, or comfort. But yet, even a twisted pursuit that results in a lot of destruction is somehow at its root something that is genuinely human. Even for someone motivated by pursuit of power, and we see how much damage that could, that could produce in the world where someone is not motivated by relationships but motivated by power over people. And yet, that pursuit is also rooted in this God-given ability to rule over creation. 
We've distorted it, we've abused it, but it's still something that is genuinely human. Even our addiction to entertainment, particularly to comedic side of things. How often do you look at funny videos, funny pictures online? (laughs) Probably daily, probably. If your phone is connected to the Internet, it's unavoidable. That's the stuff that gets shared over and over again. Why? Why why are we all looking for that, that laugh all the time? I think that's because we still remember the kind of laughter that is completely void of insecurity, that is completely void of bitterness. It's not mixed with condescension or using someone else to make fun of. That's the memory that is still somehow the collective human race still has that memory and we're still grasping for that. And yet, there's nothing quite like that in our experience. And so even though we're going after all these things in in different ways and these things are different for everybody, some are more important for some people than for others, we're all going after these things and yet we're unable to quite grasp them. And the reason is that because besides everything I just mentioned, like joy and order and beauty and love and power, what we lost is something that's much more important and fundamental to our existence. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were not only separated from the garden, their true home, but they were also separated from the Lord, their true God. And the story of the human race after the fall, after leaving that place where we belong, can be described as trying to return to the garden without returning to God. So all the pursuits I've mentioned are essentially pursuits of things that we had lost, that we had left behind in the garden when we left the garden, except that we're not actually going after God, the source of all those things, the gardener, the Lord of the garden. To put it simply, that's our fundamental problem. This is the human problem. Going after things that should be ours by right, and yet going after them without going after God. This is why all these pursuits, as noble as they are, as right intuitively as they are, they are ultimately frustrating. Because we're looking for what's in the garden without looking for the one who is in the garden himself. And so all of these pursuits that leave God out become idolatrous and ultimately destructive. It's, it's telling that the question Jesus poses to Mary is not, what are you seeking, but whom are you seeking? What is she looking for? She's looking for a corpse, She's looking for a body, trying to deal with her emotions, trying to do something for this important person who used to be in her life, somehow to work through this emotionally and move, maybe move past it. She's looking for a thing, and Jesus says, not what are you seeking, but whom are you seeking? Because for Mary to work through her lostness and to be found, it's not going to be a thing It's not going to be an idea. It's not going to be a reality. It's going to be a person. Unless she connects with the gardener, she won't get things 
from the garden. Let, let me just apply this for a little bit. I, I know I've made some big generalizations, and check that against your experience, check that against Scripture, see if I'm right, that we're all in pursuit of something we had lost, that there was an instinctive uh, drives in our lives, and yet they're not fulfilled unless the driver himself is part of the process. Now check that against, process that on your own. See if I'm right on this. But let me apply this. If I am right, that the solution to all those instinctive pursuits in life is actually not the things we are after, but the person who can give that to us, then the ministry of the church must necessarily be focused on the whom and not on the what. This is very important. And I'm afraid that we are in a time, and maybe it's always that time, I don't know, we're just critical of contemporary time, but maybe we are in a season where the church is really wrestling with that. We have a lot of what's to offer to people. But are we offering the who? That's the question, because Jesus says, whom are you seeking? Mary, you are lost. You don't know what's going on around you. Whom are you looking for? And she's thinking she's looking for a what? In, in, in the church, we kind of have to make that decision. Are we offering something to people? Or are we offering someone to people? Now, we can offer someone through things, right? But when someone comes to us and they are lost and they are searching and they're saying, I'm missing something from my life, what do we tell them? What do we give them? Do we say, let us help you with your marriage? Because obviously what you're, what you're missing is a healthy marriage. Let me help you with your finances. Because obviously what you're missing is, is just way to manage your finances better. Let me help you with your children. Let me help you with the social cause. Let me help you with your health. And we can go in all those directions. And all those things will actually benefit people. They are not useless because they correspond to those, those longings from the garden, those memories, and they will fill certain needs for people. And yet... Unless the gardener is part of that process, unless we are saying, let me tell you who can give you this. Let me tell you in whom these longings are ultimately fulfilled. What we're actually doing, if God is excluded from that, we're just giving people more idols to pursue. Maybe different ones. Maybe better looking ones. Maybe not as immediately destructive ones but ultimately still idols. But if we're telling them that the longings from the garden are right, but they are only fulfilled if you know the gardener, then we're giving them not only the fulfillment of the longings, but the person that can fulfill them eternally and forever. Let me put it differently here. Here's the universal human problem. We're all looking for something. But we'll never find what we're looking for unless we admit that we ourselves are lost and need to be found. So we're all looking for something, but we can't find it unless we admit that we ourselves are lost and need to be found. I don't need to convince anybody here that there's something that you are looking for, that there's something that's missing in your life. Everybody would say, my life isn't complete. There's no life that's complete. 
All of us will be able to point to things in our lives that say, this is not working as well as it should. I wish I had that. I wish I had gotten to this point by now. We all have those regrets. We all have those needs and, and lacks in our lives. But what I'd like to convince you of today is that your greatest problem is not that you yourself are looking for things to complement your life, but that you yourself are lost and need to be found. That is a much more fundamental need that needs to be addressed before we can talk about anything else. You see, in this passage, you, you see that, or I see that tension. Mary is looking for something, and yet, as the passage goes on, you realize that she herself is lost. And so it is in our lives. We're all looking for something. We're all missing something. But until we understand that we ourselves are lost and need to be found by someone, not just find something, but found, we need to be found by someone, none of these longings can ultimately and completely be fulfilled. So Mary's lost. We are lost. How can we be found? Verses 14 through 16. She turns around. She sees Jesus standing there. But she doesn't know that it's Jesus. She thinks it's the gardener. Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Still focused on the body, still obsessed with finding the body. And this is where Jesus says to her, one word, one word, Mary. This is where he gets emotional. Because Jesus knows her. Jesus is not just coming to say, let me help you work through this tragedy emotionally. Let's find closure together. Mm -mm. He comes for her. He comes back after the cross, after the resurrection. He comes to meet with her. Mary. whom she, He knows her. He addresses her by name. And he says it in a way that she knows immediately who is speaking to her. And so she responds, Rabboni, which is a, a term of endearment for your teacher. This is, this is an incredible passage. After Jesus is crucified, buried, and just like Ben mentioned in the beginning of the service, after this conquest of death, right? This victorious conqueror is coming back to life and he comes back to one person and calls her by name and she knows exactly who he is this is the shepherd calling his sheep and sheep know his voice and follow him as soon as Jesus calls Mary by name she knows who he is and she responds with her name for him so this relationship this personal, intimate relationship, this affectionate relationship is both-sided. They both know each other. They both can tell who each other is. And they are renewing and restoring this relationship under different conditions. Richard Sibbs, who wrote a, literally wrote a book on this passage, it's called A Heavenly Conference. He just looks at this conversation of Jesus and, and Mary. He says, If Christ says Mary... Mary cannot but answer, Rabboni. If Christ calls us by name, we cannot but answer, Lord. If he calls us a certain way, you see, he, he initiates, he finds us, and we cannot but respond 
by following him and calling him by a name we have for him. What's happening here is deeply personal. It's deeply, deeply relational. Jesus comes back for his friend whom he knows well, and Mary immediately responds as a friend would. And that is how she is found. And that is how any one of us is found. We are lost, but Jesus finds us. He comes to us and he calls us by name. And we know him. And he knows us. I don't know how you feel about Christian satire. I already mentioned comedy. So I'll go into it a little bit. But I think most of it is very helpful. Sites like Babylon Bee that is often taken to be serious and it's not. So be careful when you read the headlines. I think they're very helpful because it, it makes us make fun of ourselves and take ourselves lightly. And I think that's good overall. Uh, so one of the, it's a different site, but they were selling a t-shirt that in big letters, so this is Christian satire, there big letters that says, Jesus loves you. It's, some of us probably have t-shirts like that in our closet. But smaller print at the bottom says, but then again, he loves everybody. So it's like, Jesus loves you, but you're not really special, right? He kind of loves the whole world anyway. Now what they're getting at is this idea that you can proclaim and believe that Jesus loves the world. But this is quite different from believing that Jesus loves you and that he knows you by name. Very different. We can believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world. That's true. He did. But it's different from believing that Jesus died for my sins, that my sins contributed directly to his death on the cross. It's one thing to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, right? And that he conquered death, these these cosmic realities. That's true, absolutely true. But it's different from believing that he died and rose again, and then he came back because he wanted to be with me. Very different. And the Christian faith teaches us this absurd to many people idea that God can know his people individually and personally. I don't know if I've shared this story. I remember I was, this was, I was a new believer and I was at a party, a birthday party with a lot of my friends. They were all unbelievers. And the, all I, the picture I have in my mind, all I remember, red wine and chicken wings. That was a lot of what was happening. It was red wine and chicken wings. And a, and a philosophical conversation, as sometimes happens in Ukrainian culture. And the, the topic of the conversation was, how can anybody claim that they can know God? God is unknowable. So we had a few Kantians, the followers of Kant, the philosopher, who just said, there's, there's a chasm between us and God. Nobody can know him personally. And here I was, this, this new believer, right? Probably arrogant in my newfound faith, saying, I know him. <laughs> I know him. He, he came to me. I know Jesus. We can know God because Jesus came so we can know him. I didn't know the philosophical arguments, and I may have had too many chicken wings at that point. <laughs> but what I was claiming then is absolutely true in Scripture. God knows us by name through Christ, and we can personally know Him. You can have a real relationship with Him as a person, person you can speak with, you can go through experiences with, you can share your struggles with. 
Jesus is a friend to sinners. This is how we are found. We need to have that relationship. We need to have that experience with Christ. Uh, Simone Weil, who was a French philosopher in the middle 20th century, uh, she became a Christian at the end of her short life, um, and she describes her conversion uh, in... This is from her memoir, Waiting for God, and she describes it in this way. Again, very smart, experienced woman who's wrestling in her heart with the reality of the spiritual realities. And she says, In my arguments about the insolubility of the problem of God, philosophical understanding, can't figure out God, I had never foreseen the possibility of that, of a real contact, person to person, here below, between a human being and God. I'd vaguely heard tell of things like this, of this kind, but I had never believed in them, in the sudden possession of me by Christ. Neither my senses nor my imagination had any part. I only felt in the midst of my suffering the presence of a love, like that which one can read in the smile on a beloved face. She is describing a conversion experience where God, despite all her doubts, despite all her philosophical objections to the existence and the nature of God, God simply came to her and took possession of her. And it was real. And the experience was one of love. When a person is converted, and many of us, we, we can share these stories here, when a person is converted, and I mean really converted, the conversion is not to an idea or a creed or a movement or an organization, although all those things are important in their own right. I'm not knocking any of those. But the true conversion in Christian terms is a conversion to a person. If our problem is not so much that we have lost something but that we are lost, then the solution is not to find something like a creed or an organization, but rather to be found by someone. That's conversion. That's the beginning of your true life, your real life. That's the beginning of returning to the reality for which God has made you and which you have tasted and instinctively remember from the garden. You meet the person. You meet the person who left that garden and came to another after he was crucified and he rose again. And out of the empty tomb, he's calling you into that reality. And he's saying, I found you. I have a relationship with you, and I'm calling you into this different kind of existence. C.S. Lewis, another illustration of conversion. C.S. Lewis, um, in his early years of teaching at Oxford, was an atheist that was kind of drifting toward agnosticism. It's fascinating to read how he processed all the, and he was so introspective we have so much material to draw from of how he was processing all these things eventually he ended up being surrounded by Christians they were constantly telling him about this personal God they know and he's saying well maybe I can move away from atheism and acknowledge there may be a God but certainly he's not personal certainly I can't know him much like my friends in Ukraine same argument and so he's wrestling with that and, and he is working through his things and eventually he he thinks, well, maybe there is this God who's sort of like this spirit, this idea, and he's reading some stuff and processing through that. And then 
He says, I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. He was wrestling with this idea of God. And by the way, he was pursuing things, garden-like things, I would say. He was pursuing joy. His, his dominant pursuit in life was joy. He had glimpses of that as a boy. In, in all his writing, in all, in all his reading, he was going after that wonder, after that, that sense of, of, of pleasure wrapped in mystery. And so as he was pursuing that, he kept coming against this, this God. And people were telling him about God, this personal God. And finally he feels like, I, I feel like I was, just, I was just keeping him at bay. I was shutting him out. So as he was wrestling to that, uh, this is how he describes his conversion. He says, I was to be allowed to play at philosophy no longer. It might, as I say, still be true that my spirit, meaning this idea of God, differed in some way from the God of popular religion. So he's still not sure which idea is right here. My adversary waved the point. You know who he's calling adversary? God. God is the adversary that's chasing him, that's pursuing him, and he's realizing that. It sank into utter unimportance. He would not argue about it. So God wouldn't argue with him what he is like and, and, and counter his arguments. He only said, I am the Lord. I am that I am. I am. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, that's his college, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. What happened to him? As he was pursuing this idea that comes from the garden, again, good pursuit, noble pursuit, he kept coming up against God all the time, and finally, despite all of his objections, God just takes hold of him. And God shows up in his life, and God says, this is me, I am what I am. You have to deal with me. My question to all of us today is, have you been found by Jesus? Does he know your name? Has he called your name? Did you hear him call your name? And when he called your name, you knew who he was. And you responded, like Mary, with your own name for him, a name of affection and relationship. But our story doesn't end at being found. Mary was lost, and Jesus found her. Now look at the last part of our text, because here we see that Mary is being sent. She's sent out to tell others about Jesus. Mary, overwhelmed with emotion at seeing Jesus, hearing him call her name, she grabs hold of him to never lose him again. We don't have much detail, much description here, but it's not hard to speculate what happened. I think she just falls on the ground and just wraps her arms around her feet, around his feet and just holds on to him because she found him. She had missed him. And now he came back for her and she's got him. And Jesus says, verse 17, Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now let me explain. It's a little bit of a confusing passage. I'm going to take a minute to explain what I think John means here. This is what Jesus is saying, I think. Mary, don't cling to me, meaning you don't need to hold on to me so tightly, as if I'm leaving right now, as if I'm ascending to my Father right now. He's basically saying, settle down. I'm not leaving right now. This relationship isn't going anywhere. You're fine. I'm going to be here for you. You will never lose me again. So you don't have to physically hold me down. I'm not ascending right now. And then he says, what you do need to do now is go tell others that my God has become their God and my Father has become their Father. And nobody who follows me will ever be separated from God again. The deepest longing for the relationship with God, the fundamental thing we lost in the garden, now has been restored in Jesus. And he says, for you to continue your relationship with me, go and tell other people. Don't stay here holding on to me. There's still time. I I will ascend. Yes, tell them that I'm ascending to God. But I'm ascending to make sure that this relationship between you and me and other people is actually going to continue and will never be broken again. I will make sure of that. I think that's what Jesus is saying. I think that's why he's telling her not to cling to him. Not because he wants to wait until after he has ascended, no. Because he's saying this relationship is going to be more secure than you could ever imagine. And you don't need to be physically here touching me. You can go do what I'm sending you to do and still cultivate this deep relationship with me. Because my God has become your God and my Father has become your Father. And so Mary is commissioned. She's sent out. She becomes an apostle to the apostles. She's the first person. She sees the resurrection. She is the one who tells everybody else about the first appearance of Jesus. She is sent out to tell that Jesus has returned from the dead so they can never be lost again. She's sent to proclaim that the gardener has come back to reclaim his garden. A mourner has become a missionary. One who was lost not only is now found, but is sent out with the purpose to help others be found themselves. Now I'd like to, this is my last thought, I'll I'll finish with this. I'd like to take a different angle at this mandate to go and proclaim what God has done for us to others. We we can talk about the reasons for doing that in, in many ways. Uh, there's the concern for their neighbor, for example. You know, there's the kingdom of God expanding. There's other reasons to do it. But I'll give you one reason that I think is consistent with this text and maybe a motivation that you might use in your own life to go and tell others about Jesus. I'd like to compare evangelism and proclamation of this good news to others to praise. I'd like to connect evangelism with praise. Remember C.S. Lewis who was in this pursuit of joy, and then he encounters God, and at this point he says, I knew I might have, I might need to give up on my pursuit of joy because now I have God, and I don't know what he wants. Early in his faith, he was wrestling with that. In fact, what he discovered is that this pursuit of joy has become fuller, and he has discovered a much greater degree of joy in and with God. And when he's experienced that joy in a relationship with God, 
he's realized that praising God actually adds to the joy of his relationship with God. The point I'm making is, and I'll give you the quote from him, is that as we express what God has done for us in Christ, our relationship with Christ actually deepens. So Jesus says, Mary, don't cling to me. Go tell others about me. But he's not saying, stop for a second from relating to me and then go tell others. He's saying, as you go and you tell others, your relationship with me will actually deepen. And you will have more joy with me as you do what I am commanding you to do. Now here's how C.S. Lewis processes it. This is him as a Christian. He's wrestling with this idea of going to church and having to sing. And saying things to God that he already knows. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. This is the argument that Lewis is making. Until we express the experience we have with God, our enjoyment of that experience is not complete. Now, we tend to think differently. We tend to think, I have such a great relationship with God, now I'm going to go tell other people about it. Nothing wrong with that. Lewis is saying, is, I have such a great relationship with God, and by telling others, I'm actually improving that relationship. Part of my relationship with God is telling others about Him, is praising Him at church, is expressing the joy that I have. My joy increases even as I am expressing it. Now, we know that to be true in our lives, and I'll, I'll give you, you know, a sports illustration, okay, to show you that. When Cardinals are on a run, as, as you've been following, I'm sure. I have a friend from Chicago who always bothers me about these things. And so this week, every time the Cardinals won, and now they, they, they're tied with the Cubs uh, in Central, nobody cares, but it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But every time they won, I would text my friend. Why? Well, part of it is tormenting him a little bit, you know. But part of it is I needed to express my experience. And the expression of my experience actually contributes to the quality of my experience. So by me saying, hey, look at them. <laughs> Did you see that? Rally cat? Did you see that? Rally cat? <laughs> Tom Flutter told me to work this into the sermon. So <laughs> said, you must say rally cat on Sunday. But me sharing that actually makes the experience itself more enjoyable. This is how evangelism can work too. When Jesus is sending Mary out to talk to other people about him, he's saying through this, our relationship will actually become more intimate and it will grow and it will become more enjoyable. We tell others about Christ not only because we enjoy him, but because we want to enjoy him even more. What do we do with all of this? Well, we look at our lives, we look at our hearts, and we ask questions like, am I lost? Have I tricked myself thinking that I need to find things that we had left behind in the garden 
without actually pursuing the gardener himself. If you are lost today and you realize that you are lost, I, I pray for you and I plead with you to run to Jesus to be found. This is my obedience to the command of expressing the gospel to you. Jesus has found us. He has saved us. Through his death and resurrection, God became our God. Father became our Father. And I am inviting you into that kind of relationship, and it is a real relationship. Have you been found? And if you have been found, you have experienced this. When you read this passage, this rings true to you, and you're saying, Jesus knows my name, and I know his name. Go and share that with other people. You have been commissioned. I have been commissioned. We've been commissioned to go and share this experience with others. And as we do that, not only other people will be found by him. We get to participate with this great thing that he's doing. But also, our enjoyment of Christ will increase. And our relationship with him will deepen. Let's express that relationship at the table. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, I encourage you to come to the table and you take the bread and you take the cup. And this is a way for us to say, I believe in this. I believe in Jesus. I have been found by him. I'm a follower of his. I want more of him in my life. So please, Holy Spirit, nurture my faith, strengthen my faith so I can follow him more closely, so I can live with him more intimately. If you're not a believer, I encourage you not to come to the table. At best, it's just an empty ritual for you. But as you don't come, go to Jesus. Go to him. Be found by him. We will come forward as we sing. You can take communion right in front here and leave the cup back here in the basket. Or if you're out in the balconies, there's the same setup there. You can just move forward, take communion, and leave the cup there. Or if you want more time to reflect, to meditate, to confess, to pray, please, you can welcome to take communion back, communion elements back to your seats and do it there on your time. As we sing, this is meant to help you because the words of the song speak to us about the gospel and speak to us about the grace of God that's coming into our lives. Those who were lost are now found and we can actually praise him. So let me pray and then we'll come to the table together. Father, we praise you that that you have a true home for us. And though we, we had rejected your word and we rejected your relationship with us and rejected this true home, uh, you sent Jesus to restore us back to the kind of life you have envisioned for us. Thank you that these longings in our hearts and in our lives are indications that we are supposed to be different and experience different things and, and find things that now seem lost to us. So I pray for us as Christians as we work in whatever line of work, as we raise children and make friends and help our neighbors, as we participate in our community, as we enjoy nature, all those things. I pray that we would do all those things consciously as part of our relationship with you. Looking for the gardener in the garden. Going after those things not for the sake of them, but for the sake of you who made them and placed those desires into our hearts. I pray, Lord, that as we come to the table, we would remember what Jesus did to bring us back into relationship with you. For Jesus to say, my God has become your God and my Father has become your Father. 
For him to do that meant that he had to die, meant that he had to be expelled from the garden himself and take on the judgment on the outside. It meant that that he had to conquer death and rise again so he can offer a new life to us. We don't want to ever forget what he did. And as we reflect on it even now at the table, we pray that our hearts would respond in gratitude and joy. We want to know that kind of a Savior. We want to know him who died and rose for us and came back for us each calling us by name. Father, I pray that as we think about these things and pray now, um, I pray that you would speak to each one of us. Some of us just need to hear our name spoken by you to reaffirm that relationship we have with you. Some of us need to hear other names, people that we need to reach out to, people you're calling us to tell about Jesus and what he's done for us and tell them that our God can be their God too and our Father can be their Father. Lord, I pray for the Holy Spirit to work deep in our hearts. I pray that we would respond to whatever he has He is telling us right now. Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's do it together in faith.